Welcome to the Dear Doc Podcast, where we will discuss the business of running a dental practice with a panel of experts. Now, your host, Dr. Christopher Hoffpower. Before we get into the show and introduce today's guest, I would just like to thank United Medical Credit for being sponsors of this podcast and of the business of dentistry. As a matter of fact, they have a special offer for business of dentistry members, 0% merchant fees for the rest of the year and 30% discount for life after that. You can get that special deal by either going to DocOffInvestments.com and clicking on the deal section or by going directly to www.unitedmedicalcredit.com forward slash TBOD. Thanks again, UMC. Hey guys, this is Dr. Huffpower coming to you from my studio here in Alvin, Texas. Welcome to the Dear Doc podcast one more time. And um, please help me to welcome our guest, Dr. Gita Pensa. Uh, she owns Doctors in Litigation, where she provides physician-defendant support and coaching. She's been an emergency room physician for 20 years, and she's here today to tell us a little bit about her story, why she does what she does, and maybe, maybe to make you think about a couple of things. Dr. Pensa, how are you today? Hi, Doc. I'm doing really well. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Truly, truly a pleasure. I am actually really excited to talk to you a little bit about how you got into this. I, you know, I, I have to admit, I, I did a little bit of um, show prep and I, I listened to some of your podcasts. You, you're, you have an amazing voice, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Quite welcome. Uh, it, it really... Um, I'll let you get into it. Tell, tell us a little bit about your history. Tell us your story and why you began doing this. Okay. Uh, so uh, my story is, it's kind of a long story, but I'll try and condense it a bit. But uh, as you mentioned, I am currently an emergency physician and I also am a well-being coach for physician uh, defendants in malpractice litigation cases. Um, and I know your audience is largely dentists. Um, I just have, I, I think I probably could coach dentists, but I just have not had the opportunity. But I think that a lot of, uh, a lot of the skills uh, and the mindset required to be a good defendant are probably the same across all specialties. Yeah. But yeah, the way I came to this was um, about five years after finishing residency, I was working as uh, I was a nocturnist, which meant that I worked nights uh, in a community hospital. And it was really great. It was a good place to cut my teeth. Uh, I would be the only doctor in the hospital at night. So I would run upstairs and do deliveries on L&D if the OB didn't come in in time, or I'd manage a uh, code in the ICU and come back, run my ER. And it was in equal measure terrifying and uh, exhilarating. Uh, and I really felt like I was exactly where I was meant to be. Um, and then ownership. <laughs> so um, one night I took care of a woman um, who came in with a really uh, confusing set of symptoms. And I, I spent a lot of time with her trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, she was about 30 years old. She'd been an engineer. She was there with her husband. And uh, to make a very long and complicated medical story short, um, I did not entirely know what was going on. I imaged her. I woke a consultant up. I talked to them in the middle of the night. She improved and I wound up sending her home with this plan in place to see this specialist at about nine in the morning that day. Uh, and I discharged her around 630 and she never made it there because it said she went home and she had a massive stroke. So she's 30 years old. So uh, she was taken to a tertiary care center after that. And I didn't know what had happened until I was named in a lawsuit a few months later, um, and it was absolutely devastating because nobody had ever talked to me about what happened once you were named in a lawsuit. We'd had risk management lectures and we'd had talks about, you know, things not to do, but no one had ever said, once that finger is pointed at you, what do you do? I didn't know the very first step. And the implication to me was that as long as you were a good doctor, you didn't have to worry about that. Um, so in an instant, everything I thought I knew about myself as a good doctor and a well-trained doctor, um, just sort of came crashing down around my ears. And at the same time, I felt a lot of, lot of guilt. Um, and this thought that this poor young woman had come in and 
put her trust in me and her faith in my abilities. And somehow I had come up short. I did not understand how it had happened, but somehow it happened. Um, and so there was a lot of guilt to carry around. There was a very complex stew of emotions. Uh, but the first thing that happens when you're sued is that you're admonished not to talk about it. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so there's no support group. And, and that's that's huge. Yeah. And as a doctor, you know, and it's probably similar to to dentistry training, um, you're taught to kind of carry a lot and you learn to be stoic and you probably take a lot of abuse and training and you just kind of learn how to handle things and that becomes part of your persona. Uh, but I did not handle this well and I didn't understand why I couldn't. Um, I'd never heard the phrase litigation stress. No one had ever mentioned that that was a thing and I'd had no role models of a physician going through litigation prior to that because everybody who winds up in litigation just keeps it to themselves. So they're, they're <laughs> yeah, they're told to, right? So you so um so you're deprived of any kind of of uh, you know, role model of resilience and so having none, I just kind of sank deeper and deeper into this hole and meanwhile, um you know, the case starts plodding along and um eventually I'm I'm the sole physician defendant in a case with a 28 million dollar demand. And uh I had seen front page news about physicians and those kind of verdicts in our state. And, you know, they call out the doc and they shame them and the doc never gets to say anything. And so I just really didn't, I didn't think that I could handle that, but step-by-step step, this went through the courts in 2011. Now I saw this patient in 2006. In 2011, I went on trial for the first time um, and I was a total zombie. There's a lot that I don't remember. Uh, I did manage to win my case after you know four and a half weeks of trial and I didn't want to go back to work but I had loans and my chairman just asked me to promise to come back for two weeks and he said if you don't want to come back after that then okay um but after two weeks I was like all right I know how to do this I, I'll just keep doing it while I think about other things uh and then I got the notice of the plaintiff's intent to appeal and so to fast forward, um, I was in a very low place at that point. And then when it went through all the layers of my state courts and in 2015, they overturned my verdict and said, you're going to have to go back to trial. And I just about lost my mind. Um, there's a three-year period in there that I'm going to skip over right now uh, because it's probably going to be a lot of what we wind up talking about. Right. But um, come 2018, uh, I went to trial for the second time and I was a very, very different person um, because of what had happened in those intervening three years. And I totally sailed through my trial. I was uh, an expert defendant. I knew exactly what I was doing. I knew I owned that room. Um, I invited my residents to come watch me testify. I was in a super different place and I became like this social experiment of like trial A intervention in those three years and then trial B. And um, it was, I would say, a tremendous success, although I only have an N of one. But uh, I learned that there is a skill set and a mindset required of defendants in litigation. Uh, and not only can it be learned, it can be taught. Um, but it's a lot more than just saying, here's how you handle yourself at a deposition. Uh, here's how you testify at trial. Make sure you memorize all these notes. There's a lot more to it than that. And a lot of it has to do with mindset. Um, and so we can go back over what happened over those three years, but that in a few minutes is how I wound up being where I am. Now, you bring up something very interesting. And, and first of all, thank you for um, for sharing this. It's um and I know you've you've been doing this a lot. You've probably gotten used to it. You've built up a, a thick hide, so to speak. <laughs> the truth is, is that being willing to share a story like this helps so many people. I mean, it, it, just think about the number of lives you touch just because they hear the story and they say, I'm not alone. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. And that's actually a huge part of it. Um, I feel like there are a lot of situations um, in in medicine and healthcare in general uh, where shame is um, a really central player. 
in what happens and how the practitioner um, reacts to events that happen. And the only ways to mitigate shame are with openness and empathy. Um, some of your listeners may have heard Brene Brown talk. She's really an expert. On, she's a shame researcher who's written some really powerful books about the topic. But everything that she says um, and is borne out by qualitative research really rings true. Uh, so the first step is always being able to talk about it. Um, and the second step is for it to be received with empathy by the people who listen. And it's hard for practitioners who feel like they may have been responsible for something or have been told this is a shameful thing that you shouldn't be talking about that, which is which is what we're implicitly told um, when no one else around us. We know the numbers like we know lots of people get sued, mm -hmm. but you probably can't name any because <laughs> just a handful, maybe just through whispers or whatever, because nobody talks about it. <laughs> You know, you 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 bring up some really great points there, and I have to I have to say I I often joke that physicians are taught not to criticize themselves as much because you guys use the word revision and we use the word failure whenever we talk about work that we've done that hasn't turned out the way that we want. So, well, uh, we call it revision when we're doing it ourselves. Okay. Uh, we are quick to call it failure when we're talking about somebody else. So, <laughs> when you're talking about being judged, we're definitely there too. <laughs> And there's something to be said for that. You know, if you think about just the way that we're um, we're selected for dental school, for medical school, um, you have high achievers who are absolutely driven because you don't end up in medical school. You don't end up in dental school if you're not driven. I mean, these are people who have academically over the last four or five years spent their time doing nothing but keeping their heads down in a book, making sure they have enough volunteer hours, making sure they're spotless because that's who medical schools and dental schools and veterinary schools want. Spotless. I love that word. That's a good one. And and so it it tends to call for a certain type of personality or at least, or at least personality traits. And one of those is um, I think being very hard on yourself. You have to be your own best critic or worst critic. Um, to make sure that you can actually achieve those things. Because if you're not pushing yourself, no one else will push you that hard. And we think we know our limits, but we don't. You know, Chris, that's, that is a great springboard to talk about some of the reasons why this is so particularly hard um, for, I may lapse into saying physician, so forgive me if I do, but this is really applicable to, to, the, to dentists and whoever else is, practicing and trying to be at the top of their game and dealing with patients and taking their responsibilities very seriously. So when I talk about this and when I work with um, physicians uh, about this, there are really four buckets uh, that contribute to litigation stress being a particularly perfect storm for the physician or the dentist, um, really any healthcare worker, because I've heard from social workers, nurses, all sorts of people who provide healthcare who get sued. Uh, and I, I unintentionally leave them out of discussion sometimes because my perspective is as a physician. But so the first um, and that you bring up very astutely is the psychology of being a physician or a dentist. And it's exactly that we are raised as perfectionists, basically. So we don't tolerate a lot of error from ourselves. Um, we have developed certain egos of thought. Um, because we're used to being experts at what we do. We don't like changing the way we think, which is actually really very much required when you enter the world of litigation, uh, because the way we've thought has really served us very well. It just isn't going to serve us when we enter this new arena, but we're unaware of that. Um, the second problem is the culture in which we practice. And uh, certainly in medicine, and I'm assuming it's the same for dentistry, um, that also demands perfection. Error is really very poorly tolerated. And, you know, when in medicine, we have these things called morbidity and mortality conferences. And we used to talk about the ABCs of M&M, &M, which were accuse, blame, criticize. Uh, that's how we were raised in medicine, so to speak. Um, and self-sacrifice is really part of it, especially for physicians enduring residency. You just learn to sort of sublimate the rest of your life. You are expected to martyr yourself to a certain degree. Um, and you take that on, you take that on. That's just the ethos of what we do. 
Then, <laughs> when you enter litigation, the third problem is that the provider has literally no idea about what's going to happen. So the naivete of the defendant completely works against their survival. So physicians, dentists, most of us don't have any idea even what the basic words are. Like when I start working with people, they don't know like what's a plaintiff, what's a defendant, like what's a civil court versus criminal. They have no idea. Um, and they're completely bewildered. It's like Alice in Wonderland falling into this hole and you don't even know who to trust and you don't know who's really on your side and you don't know what you can say and what you can't say. And they tell you don't talk to anybody. And so you don't, but you also are paralyzed by anxiety. Um, and you also, you know, wish you could be the one in charge because that's the way you're used to operating, but you don't know enough to, and you have to trust people blindly. And it's very, very difficult. And you might have some feelings of guilt. Um, you might have uh, a lot of distress about being in this situation. Um, and that is systematically leveraged in a way that you don't, don't understand. And so the defendant is blind to the deliberate emotional manipulation that's baked into this process. And that brings me to bucket four, which is the way the system is designed. The way the system is designed um, is that plaintiff attorneys, attorneys in general, are very familiar with the psychology of the opposing side, so to speak. Um, they understand the psychology of the physician or the dentist and they capitalize on it. And we are blind to that. We are not ready for expert witness testimony that is slanted or exaggerated. We feel super betrayed um, when we read depositions from people who are ostensibly our colleagues that say ridiculous things we find out that there's virtually no consequence to be paid for them to not tell the truth and our hands are tied until our cases are over. We did not appreciate that we're going to be judged by juries and judges who have no idea what we do. And the four of these things come together in a swirl that becomes a stressor like virtually no other uh, in our lives. And it turns into um, a powder keg for a lot of people. And I know the statistics in medicine. I don't know what they are in dentistry, but I'm guessing that they're probably not dissimilar. One suit per doctor per seven years. Okay. All right. So I think we should acknowledge as we go along with this, that both medicine and dentistry have suicide problems. And in medicine, Burnout is a driver, and litigation is one of the chief drivers of both burnout and suicide among physicians. And when I say powder keg, I really mean that this can become a very dangerous situation um, for people who are unprepared and unskilled at managing the degree of distress that this brings on them because for many of us it's unexpected and you feel like I should be able to handle this and I can't and what the heck is wrong with me. I couldn't agree more. You know, I to interrupt you just for a moment there because I, I really don't want to interrupt your role. You're doing a beautiful job of laying this out. It seems to me when a person with these, you, you, you said oh, just something so beautiful earlier, you said ego and inflexibility. Mm -hmm. And that so defines us, whether we want to admit it or not. So when someone with ego and inflexibility is confronted with something where their colleagues and their patients are saying they've done something wrong, they have, it seems to me, three paths before them. They either develop a God complex and they say, F the world. Mm -hmm. I'm right. You're wrong. Mm -hmm. They sink into a deep depression that spirals downward out of control mm -hmm. or they build resilience. You know, they, they have an old saying that there's only three things, and I, I would expound upon that to probably be six, but the three Ds destroy dentists, drink, drugs, and divorce, ability, mm. depression, you know, maybe debt. Mm. But I think that there are a lot more commonalities than I realized before bringing you on between where we sit emotionally and mentally as physicians and dentists. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. I'd love you to uh, I'd love you to talk a little bit more about shame and whether or not in physicians, because in dentists this is a huge issue, does shame cause you to hate money or cause you to feel guilty for making money? Because we sacrifice ourselves, we become martyrs, and then in order to convince ourselves that all of this was worthwhile whenever we do have something that like like this that happens litigation mm-hmm. occurs or a board complaint mm-hmm. do you then feel ashamed that you made money off of this patient or that you make money doing this you i mean obviously you guys work in hospitals so you don't have a direct control over the bottom line but as dentists mm-hmm. we do that a lot we'll we'll cut out procedures and just not charge for them because we feel ashamed that we make quote so much money but mm-hmm. all this liability yeah. And that's, I mean, for, for my, per, you know, my part, I work in a hospital, but a lot of office docs are in the same scenario where they are, they're their own business. They are building a practice. Um, and it's a very interesting question that you ask. So shame does, shame does a lot of different things to a lot of different people when it manifests itself as, uh, as self-loathing, then there is also a great tendency, um, to feel that you don't deserve to be happy. You don't deserve, and if if money is part of that, you don't deserve uh, success. You are not good at this. You are an imposter. And it was only a matter of time before someone figured out that you were just faking it all along. They should, they should, yeah, they shouldn't have let me into school, but over here I am. And like, I'm the worst one in my class. So, um, so yeah, and what a commonality that I see whether it's about making money in your practice or um, just letting this spill over into other parts of your life uh, is that there is this feeling that I should not pursue happiness at the same time that this is going on. Um, I Something bad happened to someone on my watch. I don't deserve to be happy. This is taking over all facets of my life and that's as it should be. And it becomes it becomes a real sink or swim situation for a lot of people. Um, when you talk about drink, divorce, all those things, like I mean, litigation is a chief driver of all of those um, because it spills into there is no way to compartmentalize this stress or this shame in one, you know, one little arena. And so it spills over into uh, the rest of your work. It spills into whatever joy you have in practicing. It spills into your relationships. It spills over into your relationship with your children. It spills over into a spiritual life if you have one of those. Um, It spills over into your physical health and people develop lots of symptoms that are consistent with really severe or anxiety. Um, Substance abuse becomes um, a real concern. Um, Significant depression, anxiety, cognition problems, paying attention at work, sleep is probably the first thing to go and it affects everything else. And um, I could go on. So yes, absolutely. There's a lot of guilt over a lot of things because you don't deserve to be happy is basically the bottom line that a lot of people take out of this process. And that's how shame just kind of grows in there like Ivy um, in all the cracks and it takes over. And because we're deprived of the opportunity to talk about it openly, uh, it takes hold pretty strongly and it becomes very hard to eradicate once it's really entrenched. Yeah. Well said, well said. I've often thought of physicians and um, you have a very interesting position in society, which I imagine contributes to this. I, uh, I, I jokingly, one, one of my friends is also a, um, a, an emergency room specialist. Mm-hmm. And I, I joke with him and I tell him his job is God slave. <laughs> think you're a God, but they also think you're their slave and they expect you to do exactly what they want, but you're this God who can't make mistakes, right? And you have all this knowledge. But my ignorant self who works at HEB as a bagger, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. <laughs> that all comes out whenever a mistake is made. Talk- oh, yeah. So um, it's interesting. Um, I think that this this has a lot of um, implications when you're trying to come back to work after a suit also. Um, as physicians, we operate in the gray a lot more than 
a layperson thinks we do. Most of the decisions that we make are a balance of having some facts to go on, deciding what you um, have found in your physical. And sometimes it's a slam dunk and a lot of times it's not. And we're choosing a course of action that we think is probably the best based on our experience and our knowledge. And But there's a lot of times not one clear way to proceed with something. But when you operate in an arena that demands perfection, both internally and externally from these lay people who are, you know, they don't tolerate imperfection. You don't, you know, it's it's very, for heart attacks, it's very funny that um, the American College of Emergency Physicians has, they have all this data about, because we, one of the things that we miss a lot are heart attacks because they come in in weird ways and we're not expecting it and things presenting typically. And they decided that a 2% miss rate is acceptable, like just professionally speaking. Oh, sorry. Hang on. But if they've decided that a 2% miss rate is acceptable, um, which might be true in aggregate, if you're talking about research or trying to decide some kind of clinical guideline, but if you're the patient in that 2%, uh, that is not acceptable. And so we still have this feeling that we just, you know, we're not allowed to miss anything. We're not allowed to make any mistakes. Um, and then, yes, we're taking care of people who feel like they have expertise because they're a patient um, in a way that I don't know where else it happens. You know, you don't have people who fly a lot who think that they could fly a plane, um, but we encounter that all the time. <laughs> That's where people are like, I know my body, I know it. And sometimes they do. I mean, there we have savvy patients too. I'm not, not to discount that, but a lot of it is just, you've got a, you've got a lot of information, you have patient desires, you have your own ideas, and sometimes we have our own biases and all of these things kind of stew together pushing us towards some sort of course of action in a way that's not always, you know, like I said, it's not always black or white. And people love to think this whole phrase standard of care, like people love to believe that there is a standard of care in a lot of situations. And there isn't. A lot of times there's a lot of ways that are reasonable to proceed. But when you have a, a jury of people who just assume that there's one right way, all these cases become battles of the experts. And so all these things start whirling in your mind when you're when you've been a defendant and you're trying to come back to practice. And it makes it very hard for a lot of people um, once they're named, especially or even if they're not coming back afterwards, but just it, it takes years to resolve a lot of times. So practicing when you have that hanging over your head um, becomes really difficult because all of a sudden every choice you make seems much more fraught than it did once upon a time and the opportunity for error or for a patient just to be out to get you or whatever spin that your mind is making you have on this um, becomes a lot harder to work against because we make I mean we make hard decisions every single day when we are practicing and if you actually thought about the implications of every single decision that you made in a day um, it would be paralyzing, but that's what happens to people. They just become so analytical over every choice that it becomes paralyzing uh, in a lot of ways. So um, yeah, very complex. Hi, folks. This is Doc Huffbauer, founder of the Business of Dentistry and host of the Dear Doc podcast. Before we go any further, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about one of our fine sponsors, Dentamax. Now, I've been able to land a phenomenal deal for all of our TDOD members and our listeners on the Denimax Dream Sensor. Before I jump into the offer, if you didn't already know, Dentamax offers high-quality dental sensors. They sent me one of their Dream Sensors to try out my office, and my staff just raved about it. If you're picky about image quality, Dentamax has you covered. When you get your sensor in, a technician will help you by setting it up so that you get clear, concise images all of the time. In fact, they can even set it to mimic a sensor that you had before that you like the image on. All you have to do is share which one it was. It has a tough, durable housing, and it's backed by a three-year manufacturer warranty, which is one of the longest warranties in the industry. I also like the thin design. With the beveled corners, it makes it easy to place in the patient's mouth, and it's pretty comfortable. Now, I know a lot of you may be worried, will this work with my imaging software? You don't have to worry there. Denimax has you covered there as well. Denimax Dream Sensor works with virtually all software, 
In fact, it's usually plug and play. and You never even have to use a Twain driver. I'm excited to share this special with you because David Ornette, Denimax's CEO, was willing to give us a really great deal. All of our members can try the Dentamax Dream Sensor for free. That's right. They'll ship it out to you and let you use it for two weeks. In fact, they'll even have their technician dial it in on your systems to make sure it looks as good as possible. Now, all you have to do to get this offer is go to denimax.com forward slash TBOD. But guys, that's not it. Denimax is going to give you $3,000 off of their retail price plus a $200 discount above and beyond that just for being a member of this community. So you can get a size one sensor for just $27.99 and a size two sensor for $37.99. It's a really great deal on a really great sensor, but you don't have much time to wait because this deal ends on July 4th. So go ahead and go to dendamax.com forward slash TBOD, check out the deal and celebrate your freedom from high prices. Thanks again, folks. This is Doc Huffpower. Let's get back to the show. I'd like you to talk a little bit about how fear of litigation and fear of public shaming causes defensive medicine and how that affects the way that we treatment plan. I know, for instance, in dentistry, um, there is a, almost a, rob, a mob rule of diagnostics. It's well, what, what, what would a prudent doctor do? You know, if I step out of the lines here, uh, is something going to go wrong? And if it does go wrong, am I going to be held accountable to, you know, the profession at large when, when I'm seeing this patient here and much like you said, there, there's not really always a quote standard of care. I see what I see in this patient. I know in my hands what this procedure is going to do. I know what my longevity of treatment is. I know that this patient's also diabetic. They have xerostomy. They have, you know, whatever else is going on. Every single one is a unique, beautiful little butterfly. <laughs> you have to make the right choice. And like you said, it, you know, it's, it's 50% clinical knowledge, 25% anecdotal from other physicians, 15% what's worked in my hands. You know, it, it's a complex, complex algorithm that we go through every day. First, mm -hmm. is this next choice that I make going to kill someone? Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about that. And also, if you don't mind, the effect that defensive medicine has upon stifling medical advancement, as well as insurance rates. Oh, boy. Okay. There's a lot in that question. <laughs> so package of stuff to play with. Yeah. So defensive medicine is a thing like that is, this is very true. Um, and there are people who are afraid of being sued. And then there are people who have been sued and are afraid of just the choices they make because of the implications of it. What we know is that juries, uh, patients in general love tests. They, they like to be reassured. Um, but we also have a responsibility at cost containment. We know that our, you know, our, costs are through the roof. And there's a lot of campaigns to get physicians to choose. Choosing wisely is the name of one of these campaigns. Um, and so it does, you know, we know that what we do as individuals affects everything in aggregate. And so we take that responsibly, you know, we take that fairly seriously. Uh, but I'll tell you that the first time I was sued, a lot of the case boiled down to whether or not I ordered an MRI out of the emergency department, which is not something that we do a lot. Uh, we do a lot of CAT scans, but MRIs are very expensive and very time consuming. And um, But their primary argument was like, well, you should have gotten an MRI. Uh, do you think, as I went along after that, that if I ever had a patient where I was like, hmm, should I get the MRI? Or like, should I wait for to that as an outpatient? Like, where do you think I fell? Um, and I actually don't make any apologies for that now, but there is a pendulum that swings a little too far when people are under stress and distress and the tendency is to overtreat, overtest, and that has its own set of complications um, and burdens for the patient. And it's just in recognizing that and coming to this place of equanimity that you can sort of rein that in, but it is a real problem. And it's funny, you know, they've done some research about um, whether or not tort reform in certain states affects the patterns of physicians 
over testing and order overing or over ordering. And the research seems to suggest that it doesn't. But what that research doesn't take into account is that physicians aren't really, I mean, it's sort of a secondary concern for them in terms of like how much they're going to owe when the whole thing is over. They don't want to be. I, I, I keep missing what you just said. I'm sorry. That's what malpractice is for. You know? right. That's what malpractice is for, but they don't want to be named because it's the accusation. It's the start of the whole thing. They don't want the perception of malpractice um, because the injury starts just at the accusation, right? It's not really about the outcome, which is years later. It's about the accusation and the cascade of fear and distress that that initiates. And so that that's not a good way to look at the problem. Um, if you had more systemic changes in terms of like who is going to be deciding whether a suit can be filed in the first place, like can that be a jury of your peers? Is there like how re some states do have these uh, tribunals, but they're, you know, in a lot of cases, they're just sort of, you know, they're kind of uh, not really, <laughs> not really doing what they were designed to do. Yeah. Um, there are other ways, I think, to get at that. Uh, but that fear is real. And I think that, you know, most docs you talk to, once they've been sued, there is a, a huge tendency. And also to over-document. Like, documenting is a huge part of our jobs. Um, and I know docs who just stay, like, hours and hours and hours after their day is done to just keep writing and writing and writing and writing. And it's so hard. It's it's funny. So to let you know how much that resonates with me, um, I actually own part of a company uh, called Infold AI, and we are creating a product for dentists to be able to speak in their natural voice into their phone and have it automatically entered into the electronic health record because we do. We stay behind mm -hmm. and we over document and we miss the time with our families, which, man, it's so easy in this business to forget why you do what you do. And it mm -hmm. was not to become a god slave, right? Mm -hmm. it, it was to have a wonderful, healthy, environment that you work in where you help people and you do well by doing good but more and more it's turned into a travesty yeah you know i don't know i i have to look up who said this but someone uh wise it just struck me at some point said that the um the end point of all ambition is to be happy at home and i don't think people recognize that but they just you know what what are you trying to achieve for and it's usually so that you can be happy with who you are and come home at the end of the day and feel like things are good. That's what you want. Um, and we definitely lose track of all the things that make us whole in that regard. And litigation has a way of walling us off from all of that good stuff. Um, and we just dig that hole deeper and deeper and deeper. You think it's because of the loss of self-identity that comes with that? Um, you envision yourself as a certain person. I am a good doctor. I treat my patients well. I do my best. And then you have someone else who's coming at you, an expert witness, which by the way, I'd, I'd love to hear your opinion on expert witnesses and <laughs> doctors who come back in, in a couple of moments. But do you think it's because of that loss of identity? You, you, you're, you're confronted with an alternative view of who you are and you have to, mm -hmm. do, I, do I see best who I am in my soul or am I best seen through the eyes of others? That is a huge, huge, huge part of it. So when someone, and this is why the accusation um, carries as much weight as any outcome in the end, uh, because that accusation is throwing into chaos this identity that we've really carefully constructed over many, many, many years and with a lot of sacrifice, both personal and financial, um, to become this ideal that we had in our head. I mean, not that we're always thinking that we're, you know, we've arrived in any way, but we cultivate this identity. It means everything to us. And then all of a sudden, here come these people saying that you're a phony, you killed somebody, you you hurt somebody, you don't know what you're doing, you're ignorant, you're a quack, you're it's just the imposter syndrome that's running on that stupid reel in the back of our heads. Yep. And then you think, what did I you know, look at all the things that I sacrificed to get to where I am right now. Like I missed birthdays, holidays, anniversaries. I missed, you know, my twenties, basically. <laughs> like I spent it all in training, you know, what did I do that for? Um, to be a crappy doctor, right. to hurt people, because that's 
what this boils down to. And a lot of the work I do is, is working on rehabilitating that, that self image and also really drawing attention to the fact that any healthcare professional is so much more than one case. Like if everybody in the world judged by themselves by the worst day that they've had, then, um, you know, where would we be? But it's complicated because one, you know, I'm talking like there's error inherently baked into this. Most malpractice cases don't actually involve error. And that's a whole other discussion that we can talk about. But um, in those cases, there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of um, it may not be inwardly directed. It's outwardly directed at like, I'm so angry at this stupid system. Look at all this stuff that I sacrificed for this stupid system. I'm so mad. They, you know, it's taken up so much of my life and these patients all suck. And I just, I can't do this job anymore because there's a 10,000 other cuts that have been eating at me. Uh, and now, now look at this. Death so that's a whole other. <laughs> yeah. Our professional death by a thousand cuts, I, I suppose. Yes. What is your, what is your feeling on the current educational system? Other than that, it doesn't prepare us for anything. I, I like I like to tell my patients, well, I got this degree, so um, now I can practice doing it right. Or <laughs> uh, they, they barely teach us enough to not kill someone. <laughs> That's when the real learning begins. But um, look at look at what you've said and what you do for a living, and then what do you think about the debt load to income ratio? I don't, I don't know if you, you've ever looked at that, but um, there, there's actually um, the Occupational Outlook Handbook, which is run by the government. It has a debt to income ratio where it says, okay, this is not a favorable employment for you because mm -hmm. your debt ratio is too high. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the MD scores are right now. I know that dentists, it's, it's abysmal. It should be, I think, like um, one to five, your debt to income ratio, and our debt is uh, a minimum of about five hundred thousand dollars right now. Getting out of getting out of dental school before you mm -hmm. go or anything. Mm -hmm. um, and it, right now, I think orthodontists are the highest with between seven hundred thousand and one million dollars of debt day one. Mm. Stepping out of school, I don't mm -hmm. know how high it is for physicians, but with the number of years you guys are in residency, I imagine it's pretty darn high. Yeah, there are there are plenty of us who come out hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And then there's a delayed earnings because you do residency. So when you're making less than minimum wage for four or five, six, seven years thereafter, when you think about the basically, you know, you know, the cost of a delayed um, savings. Like like that. Is it worth it anymore? You know? Yeah. Well, that's a very interesting question. And so when people, let's take litigation out of the, you know, out of the bucket for a second. Um, I think there are already many, 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 many physicians who are thinking that not only is this not, you know, it, because of those thousand, you know, death by a thousand cuts, like not only is this worth it, like period, it's financially not tenable um, because, I mean, let's look at a, a an office-based physician. So they have all this debt, they're trying to pay it back. They are running a small business, right? And so all of these people that they're employing also have to- Trained to run either, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we, weren't, we weren't trained to run it in the first place. You're employing office staff that all need healthcare and all, of, all those benefits, and those are super expensive. People don't really think about the overhead of a physician or a dentist's office and the fact that all of that just comes out of whatever the physician's making, right? There's no, there's no other income generation there. Um, most physician practices have at least one person whose sole job it is, is to deal with prior author authorizations with insurance companies Absolutely. because what, yeah. So what insurance companies do prior all day authorization is, just means we're not going to refuse it now, but we might later, you know, yeah, they just, they need permission to, they won't pay for something or they deny care. And you need a person who has the time to sit on hold with the insurance company and jump through all these hoops and the doc can't do it because the doc has to see patients more and more and more in a day because Medicare rates keep getting cut. Like as I speak, CMS just cut rates again by I think 5% in a period of time when there is 8% inflation. So yeah, that just, yeah. We, we actually could do an entire, probably two or three podcasts just on insurance commonalities between dentistry and medicine and oh, god don't get me started um 
it's horrendous. It's horrendous. So anyway, now, now amidst all those frustrations, now you get a letter that really throws you um, into this really bad place psychologically. And you can begin to see when someone has really dedicated their whole life, they're in crazy debt, they're scrambling to try to keep this practice going. They're questioning their life choices. They're questioning, you know, I dedicated my life to what I thought was a good thing. Um, none of this is turning out the way I expected it to. And now here are these people saying that I hurt somebody because I'm bad at what I do. And they are coming after me. I can't talk about it with anybody and nobody understands what this is like. And now you begin to see why this is a dangerous situation. So if, if there's a dentist out there and they're listening to this podcast, how can they get into contact with you? If, if they need someone to talk to, they need someone to coach them. And I, I, I think, I think more and more as this conversation has gone, gone on, I think, I think there's a realization that we're just in the same boat and you probably mm -hmm talking to dentists as well, because we have the same issues going on. So how can they get in contact with you? So um, I, I do have a website. It's doctorsandlitigation.com. Oh, there it is. <laughs> um, you can also find me at gitapensamd.com. Um, I have a podcast, and I think that that's a good place to start um, for most people. Um, yes. Uh, and you can search for it. Um, it's called Doctors and Litigation, the L word. Uh, and what that is, is a sort of self-contained curriculum for physicians. Because what I set to, out to do was to make the thing I wished I'd had when I was starting out. Um, and it's this sort of long story about how I got into um, podcasting, but I, I made a series of changes in my life um, when I decided that after the better part of, you know, a decade, um, I'd probably suffered enough. Uh, and I sort of made a study out of, um, you know, I finally went to see a therapist. That was probably a really good move. That should have happened a long time before that. But, you know, I think we are trained to be stoic and sort of say that that's not something that we would necessarily need. We don't want to be weak, do we? No, I don't want to be weak. Um, God forbid. <laughs> So um, delving into, um, you know, I got my first self-help books. I got my first, you know, sort of cracking a spine of these things in a way that felt horribly self-indulgent, um, but really coming to this place of where you're on your knees and you're either going to, you are going to sink or you're going to swim. And the only way you're going to swim is if someone throws you something to hang on to. And so allowing yourself to look for that thing is huge. Um, and so when I finally got to this point where I was, able to make decisions that benefited myself and my happiness. Um, that was when I actually decided like, okay, I have to learn how to like my job again. And one of the things I did was join an academic faculty. I started teaching and that was when I learned how to podcast and I started doing this research podcast. And I, then I thought, let me make this thing. And I interview a lot of other doctors who've been through it and psychologists and attorneys. And so that's a great place to start. I did all the editing. I'm going to brag because, um, Although now when I listen to it, I'm like, oh, I think I could have done that better. <laughs> it got too much. I had to hire a team for it. So it's a, it's a lot of work. Um, but it, for me, it was also the sort of like creative flex. And I was trying to like, I don't know, I was, I was trying to just, I didn't know if anybody was going to listen to it. Like I really didn't. I just figured I'm just going to make this thing and put it out there. Um, and it turned out to be actually quite successful. I mean, by relative standards. Um, and so it opened a door to start talking about this. Then I started studying coaching and all this other sort of stuff. And so this led me to this place where now I um, I do coach individuals. I'm just starting doing group coaching um, because the I, do, I, I I'm still a doctor, so I don't actually have the time to do as much one-on-one -on -one coaching as I would like. Um, but I'm going to try to start making more room for it. But I'm also starting group coaching, which is actually being... Um, I think it's, I think it's going to be amazing. Like we have our first cohort going right now. I do this with another coach. Um, and we have a group of 10 docs that started off pretty wary 
Um, and it is just fantastic. Um, the breakthroughs that we're making together. And a lot of it is just having a cohort of people that you can talk to. We don't talk about the details of our cases. And this is something that I should correct because we've been saying this all along, this whole don't talk about it, don't talk about it, don't talk about it. When you are told not to talk about it, that's easy for the lawyer or the insurer to say. Uh, but there's really no other situation in which you traumatize an individual and then the powers that be say, okay, don't talk about it. You absolutely can talk about it. What you should be smart about not talking about your case details. Um, but you, the, the only risk in that is that they may ask you at deposition who you've talked to about this case and they may choose to depose that person. It's not against the law. It's not like there's, but we're rule followers. So we tend to take it very seriously when they say don't talk. But you should. You should talk about it with people who love you. I know people who have like held it from their spouse for like years and years. It's it's absurd. Um, but you should talk about it with the people who are important to you. You should talk about it with your colleagues. Um, if there are not support systems set up in dentistry, then that is something that somebody should take on. Um Peer support is one of the things that I champion a lot, um, and it's much easier in hospital-based systems where people are sort of all cohorted together. It might be a lot harder in um, dentistry practices where it's where there's small practices. Um, but figuring out a way to talk to people who understand inherently this complex stew of emotions is is truly key. You know, it's it's funny. We, we practice in a sea of solitude and isolation because in general, most dental practices are one doctor. Um, mm -hmm. We're starting to have more group practices and things like that. But you guys practice in a system that seems intent upon killing your patient because you almost have to break the rules to get the test you need and, and to, get, to get things done the way you think they should be done. So it, 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 there's a lot of mutual frustration there, I think. Mm -hmm. I think that's very true. Um, but yeah, I, I'm happy to, so I do, um, by the way, I do, I don't know what institutionally if people belong to institutions or professional societies, but I do a lot of public speaking about it too. Um, and I think as a whole raising, I think we're all sort of like semi-aware in the back of our heads that this is a thing, but giving it a name and bringing it into the visible and the known is very much my mission. So yes, I encourage people to reach out to me and I will figure out how to get them the help they need, or perhaps I'll be able to work with you either one-on-one -on -one or in a group. Um, actually, that's really interesting. I wonder, you and I should talk offline about like a group for dentists. I, um, I, I didn't want to be disrespectful of your time because I know we scheduled this for an hour and we've been going an hour and a half now. So um, <laughs> years, um, you <laughs> that something happened in the three years between whenever you were tried and whenever the appeal went through and you had to go back to court. Um, can we talk about that? Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, so in 2015, I found out that my verdict was being overturned and I had spent uh, much of the years prior to that in a very bad place. I was functioning. I think I was doing what a lot of depressed doctors or dentists do, which is you just sort of keep showing up and putting one foot in front of the other. And whatever it is that you're suffering from, you just try and put away, but it comes out in unhealthy ways. And so I was you know, very impatient with my children and my husband. And um, as a side note, I had been pregnant with my third child when I saw this patient and she was in middle school by the time this whole thing wrapped up. Wow. Uh, it was a 12 year saga. <laughs> but um when I found out that my verdict had been overturned, um, I was fairly begging my insurance company to settle. I didn't want to, I didn't want to go through trial again. Uh, and they were very much at this point of a mind that I had done everything I could possibly do. And this was totally defensible and they were not paying one penny. Um, so they were willing to make this investment. Now trials are very expensive. So they were making, they were going to make this investment to go to trial a second time. They very much believed in me, but I did not want to do it. And, you know, one day my attorney called me and um, he used to, he'd been a Marine at some point. He was not having any of my, any of my angst. Um, 
And he basically was like, you're going to put your big girl pants on and we are going to go to trial and you are just going to figure yourself out. And uh, I hung up the phone and I was just like sobbing, sobbing, sobbing. And, um, and then I had this moment, which had probably been something I had been in the sort of pre-contemplation phase for a long time, thinking like, I can't stay like this. Like something's going to happen. Um, and I finally, I'm sorry, what'd you say? What caused that catharsis? What caused that epiphany? What, what, you know, what, how did you get there? I think it was... I was tired. It had been a long time. It had been years of not feeling like myself and being depressed and unhappy. And I think I hit the equivalent of rock bottom. Um, I'm not a drinker. <laughs> yeah. Well, there is somewhere else to go. Um, and that had started crossing my mind and I scared myself. And I, I was afraid. I think that for the first time in my life, I was really afraid of what I might do. Uh, and I'd never had depression, anxiety, but I had been like laboring under this for a long time at this point and I was not well. And so it was the first time that I was just like, I gotta, I gotta do something. Like I really need to do something, um, which is, you know, it's good. I'm proud of myself in retrospect that I decided like, I'm going to get help as opposed to like, I'm going to, you know, I'm really going to just take my own life. I'm going to take myself out of this equation. I know ways that I can make it painless. You know, I've yeah. got insurance. It'll take care uh, of the kids. Yeah. A, a thousand percent. So, um, so I did, I started, uh, the, and I, I just, I call this basically my scarlet hair moment. Cause I hung up the phone and I cried and I cried and I put my head up and I was like, you know what? I'll go to trial, but with God as my witness, I am never going to be like this again. I'm never going to be like this again. Uh, and that was when I started. Someone had along the way given me a book. Um, it was called When Good Doctors Get Sued. And I liked the title, but I never read the book. Um, and the first thing I did. Was... <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, my bookshelf as well. Yeah. So I, I, I went upstairs and I started reading it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> how about that? Like, maybe this could be helpful. Like, maybe someone outside of my own head could be of use to me. Um, and teach me something that I don't know about how I might eventually be okay. And that was the start of, you know, I got a lot of books and I took them seriously and I took notes and I highlighted them and I tried all the hokey exercises that I thought were fine for other people, but certainly not for me. Um, and it turns out that they were actually quite helpful. Um, and so one thing led to another, as I mentioned, I started talking to a therapist, which is a huge step for me. Um, and the better I felt, the more I started to realize like, huh, <laughs> you know, I wish I hadn't spent so much time not, you know, being health resistant, uh, which is what I was change resistant, health resistant. Um, and then I started thinking like, hmm, you know, there's probably more I could learn. Uh, and so I really started learning a lot about, uh, litigation, um, being a good defendant, um, I explored lots of different things, cognitive neuroscience and cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's what led me to, to learning about self-coaching and a lot of formal training as coaching. It's, it's interesting because I, I kind of came to the place that, uh, that we're taught now as coaches, but I came to it sort of like in a crazy convoluted way, <laughs> just like sort of accumulating all this knowledge. Um, and I made some professional choices I mentioned that made me just sort of happier with what I did. Um, and now I have, um, like, I've sort of got this great balance of jobs that I really enjoy. Um, I work for a professional CME company as a podcaster. I still do my research podcast. I do coaching and things like that. I still work in the emergency department. Um, started doing things a lot more on my terms, learning how to say no to things that I really don't want to do, <laughs> um, be more of a self-advocate, all of those things. Yeah, a good but, friend told me years ago, and I, I think it fits. When you say notice, and when you say yes to something, you say no to something else. Exactly. And we say yes to a lot of things that the establishment has told us we should say yes to that don't necessarily serve us. Um so one funny story, um, which is that I, I started working on the interviews for this podcast in 2017. Um, I put a message out on social media asking 
for doctors who'd been sued uh, if they were interested in talking about not their cases, but what what they felt like, what it felt like to um, you know, like mask their face and, you know, disguise their voice or were these. <laughs> it was just audio. So, no, we, we weren't doing video with it. And I kept them all anonymous, even though a lot of people said I don't have to be. But I did keep everyone anonymous. Um, and that's what that plus interviews with attorneys, like how to give a good deposition, how to be, to be a good trial witness, all of that stuff wound up being what I put into this podcast curriculum. But I couldn't publish anything until after my second trial was done. I knew that they would completely come after that. Um, so about six months before uh, I was supposed to go on trial the second time, I was in a much, much better place mentally. Uh, but I knew I probably had to put that aside. And a friend sent me a um, <laughs> forwarded an email to me about this charity competition in Rhode Island um, called Dancing with the Doctors. Uh, which is sort of like dancing with the well, sort of <laughs> sort of like dancing with the stars, um, where they match you up with professional ballroom dancers, um, and you train and you fundraise for a particular charity. And that year it was the Rhode Island Free Clinic. And um, I'd seen that in the years before, and I'd summarily deleted the email. And uh, my friend sent it to me and said, "Like, I think you should do this." And um, I was going to delete it again, but then I saw the date of the gala was a week before my second trial was supposed to start. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe this is the thing. Because um, I knew I need some, I needed some sort of positive distraction that felt like an indulgence that I deserved um, because trial is hard. And I signed up for it. So I trained with this professional ballroom dancer who had been the three-time Czech Republic national champion. It was unbelievable. Um, I trained with him for four months. And uh, the gala was probably one of the coolest nights of my life. You know, I had been very open and honest with my nursing staff, my colleagues. Everybody knew why I was doing this. And I also shook everybody I knew down for money. So <laughs> but I wound up raising like $25,000 for the free clinic. Uh, and I, I had this fabulous night with my family and my friends and, you know, the nurses came, they rented a party bus, like they were totally lit by the time they came in, there were like signs and, um, and I won and I just rode that wave, um, all the way into my second trial. And at that point, um, a lot of the nurses, people that I worked with came, um, they watched, they told me in you know, during the recesses, like, don't listen to that junk. None of that stuff is true. You are a great doctor and you belong with us at work. You just need to get through this and come back to us, come back home, uh, which meant a ton. And, um, you know, I also would want it to be, you know, my kids had grown up with this, right? And now they were all teenagers. I had three girls that were teenagers now and they were watching me and I wanted to be this model of grace under pressure for them. And I had practiced for the role of a trial witness as well. Um, and I invited, like I said, I've invited my residents to come watch me testify. Like I knew what I was doing. I had prepared myself. Um, and it is a role that you play when you go to trial. Um, but having learned those steps too, um, I think was, was really instrumental, but, um, all of that is to say that, this process does not have to be the way that it often is. Uh, and there are modifiable factors all along the way, talking about the, just the identity of the physician, the naivete of the, of the physician or the dentist, the culture that we have around litigation. All of these things have modifiable circumstances. The very first step is doing exactly what you're doing, Chris, which is just inviting conversation about this topic openly, honestly, and letting people realize like how common this is and that this is really a shared distress. We put ourselves in these silos, but a lot of people are going through this at the same time with very, very similar stress and distress. Uh, and that's something that we can change fairly readily. You're never going to be able to take the angst out of the process, but it doesn't have to be this Black just out yeah despair. it does not it does not it's never going to be great but there is the opportunity for this to be 
a crucible that makes you into somebody who's actually stronger and potentially happier than you were beforehand. Um, I ask people just to hold space for that. But knowing that that's a possibility is very, very important for people, I think. Uh, steel is made by taking something and beating the hell out of it under very, very high heat. Mm -hmm. That's exactly true. That's exactly true. And um, I think that as, if we have more people who come out and say, like, this was very difficult. This is how I got through it. I am still happy with what I'm doing with my life. These are the ways that I achieved that. Not saying that we can't work to change the system. You know, I'm not saying that, you know, we shouldn't be trying for tort reform and we shouldn't be trying to um, change the way these things are litigated and we shouldn't be trying to make changes in expert witnesses and the standards that they have to uphold. We should be doing all those things. But for the individual defendant going through it, there is a place of acceptance and equanimity that they can get to, um, especially once they understand that uh, this does not say anything singular about them. I think that there is a way that we can do a lot better with this. I completely agree. So folks, if you would like to get in touch with Dr. Gita Pinsa, you can go to our website, which is doctorsinlitigation.com. You can see that right here. Um, should they just hit the contact button? Yeah, that's exactly what to do. Fantastic. Well, Gita, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it, it's definitely been one of my, um, my favorite interviews, I think, of all time. Oh, wow. Uh, it, you're, you're not only well-spoken, you're compassionate, knowledgeable, and that's a, a rare combination. <laughs> so I, I do heartily appreciate you coming on. Folks, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Dear Doc podcast. I hope that the information that we've given you today has, if you're undergoing this, taken some of the stress off of you, taken some of the judgment off of you. And if you're not, perhaps it's put you in the correct headspace to know that you're not alone when it does happen, because most of us do get sued eventually. So, Gita, thank you again for coming. And uh, folks, this is Doc Power signing off. Thanks for listening to the Dear Doc Podcast, your source for the business and legal questions associated with your dental practice. Don't forget to subscribe to the Dear Doc Podcast on all major platforms.